Hello there, I'm Chase Tibbs, and this is Faith in Capital. Welcome to episode one! I want to start off by asking you why you are here. Why are you listening to a podcast about theology, Christian faith, and the system of capitalism? Seriously, I'd love to know, so hit me up on Facebook Messenger or email me at tibbschase at gmail.com because I'm guessing you and I have similar interests, and I would certainly be better for knowing you. To begin our time together, I thought we'd start by offering up one major why as to answer the question, why might persons and communities of faith be interested in and critically reflective of this thing called capitalism? Then, during the latter half of our very first episode, we'll look at the foundational relationships of capitalism, with a particular focus on the way in which our workplace relationships are organized and structured. Shall we? Let's ask ourselves, why might Christians, people who are reformed and renewed by our remembrance of whom Paul referred to as Christ crucified, have any interest whatsoever in thinking about the system of capitalism? What might our faith have to do with capital? At the root of my faith, and I believe the faith of many others, is this conviction that relationships matter. Our relationships with God, with others, with ourselves, and with the rest of the beloved creation really do matter. And this is the bedrock for today's and the following several episodes. We are in relationship with the relational God who created us as relational beings. The scriptures tell us about these covenantal relationships, right? And made between the creator and creation, particularly through human beings, and that these covenants were made for the well-being of all creation. The covenants aren't intended to bless one people or one group. These relationships are established for the blessing of all people and all creatures everywhere. Take the first covenant. The covenant made with Noah and his family is a change in the terms of relationship between creator and creation. After God does what all ancient Mesopotamia gods did when humans misbehaved, namely, destroyed everything in whose nostrils was the breath of life, as the book of Genesis tells us, God decides to never do that again. Clearly, for our own good. And every covenant after builds and expands upon the first covenant's pursuit of our relational well-being, whether it be through Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Hagar, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, David, and even the covenantal relationship that emerges through Jesus. At the root of them all, we get the sense that relationship matters to God. Throughout the scriptures, we can hear God's desire to liberate and restore the beloved creation, including all people, from our broken, distorted, and violent ways of being and relating in the world. Even Jesus, borrowing the powerful words of Isaiah, inaugurates his own ministry in the gospel according to Luke by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is how Jesus starts his ministry, proclaiming restoration of dispossessed and exploited peoples, liberation for people living under oppressive powers, healing for those in their suffering, and the divine's intent to bless all creation. It seems to me that God is relentlessly and faithfully committed to the well-being of all creatures and creation. Our relationships matter to God, which means how we relate to ourselves and others in the world should matter to us. In fact, that's the human side to all these bargains. Besides God's one-sided agreement made through Noah, all the rest require humans to live in right relationship with one another, all creation, and with the Creator. And this is where faith comes in. Now, when we hear the word faith today, used by religious folk, Hollywood stars, politicians, and billionaire philanthropists, what is commonly being referred to is either blind trust in something that may or may not happen, or an act of consciously subscribing to a list of doctrinal beliefs, conveniently posted on a church website about the transcendent existence of God, or the inerrancy of the Bible, or the existence of an otherworldly afterlife. That's not what I'm talking about here. When I talk about faith, I'm referring to the what or who we are faithful to, that which has captured or persuaded our deepest desires, what ultimately concerns us in the depths of our being. And because we exist in an infinite web of relationships, it is through our material relationships that our faith, our truest concerns, are continually being revealed, constantly being lived out. Even when we're not aware of it, the desires that guide our lives and our ways of being in the world are always being embodied. And that's a tricky part about our faith, right? The fact that we're not always conscious of what or who we are living faithfully to. For example, when Paul says in his letter to the Romans, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We can hear him pointing to the reality in which human beings internalize concerns, values, and desires that we're not even consciously aware of, but that still shape our ways of being and relating in the world. Talk about limits to individual free will. And this is why, as people of faith, we need to talk about politics and economics. It is in the political and economic relationships of our lives, whether they be in our workplaces, our home lives, our intimate relationships, even our nation's international trade agreements, that the ultimate desires of us as individuals and communities those concerns that steer our way of being in the world as a people are lived out and revealed. You want to know what or who someone, a group, or even a nation is faithful to? Don't ask them to recite a specialized list of beliefs. Not even a national anthem or a few words on a dollar bill will tell you. Look at how they relate to themselves and to others. Where does the individual spend their time? the community spend their money, the state or nation spend their tax dollars, the people use their energy. What are the deeper desires and interests that seem to drive them? 
And so, as Christians, to say that our faith is in the God of the crucified one is to align our concerns and our desires with God's desires. And if our relationships and our relational well-being matter to God and are to matter to us, then the relationships of capitalism should not be exempt. All right. In order for us to begin thinking about what capitalism does, how it does it, and why, personally, I found it helpful to start with an analysis of the class structure of a capitalist enterprise. And by class structure, I mean the particular way in which capitalism organizes the relationships of our workplaces and our society. But today, we're just going to be talking about our workplaces. Again, these relationships are what make businesses and corporations capitalist as opposed to being something else. To do this requires us to think about class in a way that is different from the common tendency to define class as a variation of income level or wealth. On the rare occasion that people mention class in the U.S., what they are usually referring to are brackets of income, like, say, a lower class that makes an annual household income of less than 21000 for a family of four, a middle class that has a household income of anywhere between the incredibly low poverty line and, say, 300000 a year, and, of course, an upper class that brings an income between the small range of 300000 to, I don't know, $35 billion is what Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos made in 2017 alone. Instead of reducing class to simply income levels or even wealth, although both are very important, what if we were to think of class in terms of relationship and power? In this light, we might ask, what are the fundamental relationships that constitute or define a capitalist enterprise? How does the one component relate to the other? How does each participant relate to the enterprise's process of production and distribution? How is power distributed among each participant? Alright? This is class in terms of relationship and power. Now, before we identify the two foundational groups of every capitalist workplace, let's stop for a second and say a little bit more about this process of production and distribution. Just as there are two sides of every coin, there are also two sides of every business, every enterprise, and every workplace. There's the production side in which profits are produced. Imagine, you're at your favorite ice cream place, and the person behind the counter swirls you a perfect vanilla ice cream cone, then sells it to you for a value more than it costs to make. Right there. Profits were just produced. On the other side of the enterprise is the distribution side, in which those profits are distributed. Some to the workers, and then the rest ends up doing stuff we'll talk about later on down the road. For now, we can see that even our favorite ice cream joint has a two-step process of producing and distributing profits. Okay, back to the relationships. Just as there is a production side and a distribution side to every workplace, there are also two main groups that relate to each other and to the process of production and distribution of profits in specific ways. And as we said earlier, this way of organizing relationships in the workplace is what makes an enterprise capitalist as opposed to non-capitalist. And while there are various factions within each group, 
I want us to start by simply naming the two foundational groups. In every capitalist enterprise, there is group one, the producers, and group two, the directors. In group one, the producers, you have the workers or employees. In group two, the directors, you have the capitalists, who are the employers, the board of directors, and the major shareholders. Group one is told what to produce, where to produce it, and how to produce it. Group two governs both the labor of the producers and the distribution of all the profits. They direct the whole process of production and distribution. Whereas group one produces the product that is sold for profits, group two appropriates and distributes those profits however they see fit. Besides maybe picking the flavor of the month, our ice cream parlor employee has no say in what their labor produces. They are excluded from directing the enterprise. Their employer, on the other hand, has all the say over what is produced and how the profits will be distributed. They include themselves in the directing of the enterprise. The producing group sells their labor and the rights to the fruits of their labor to employers for wages that are less than the value they actually produce, hence where those profits are made. The empowered directing group buys the labor power of employees, pays them less than the value their labor produces, and lives off the fruits created by their workers' labor. Are you starting to see it? What I really want us to think about today is the unequal distribution of power between the two relational components of this capitalist class structure made up of producers and directors. As another example, let's take Walmart. At Walmart, the tens of thousands of employees have no say over the kinds of items and services, what are referred to as commodities, the corporation will have the workers produce and then sell to their own communities in which they live. Nor do they have any say in how the profits produced by their collective labor will be spent and distributed. Instead, the major shareholders, right, the, the Walton family, handpicks a few board of directors to first govern the production side, and then second, appropriate and distribute the fruits collectively produced by the tens of thousands of Walmart employees. In a nutshell... The weight of the enterprise's production of new value and profits is highly concentrated on Group 1, who are also excluded from participating in the decision-making. They are disempowered, while all the power and all the important decision-making is concentrated into the hands of Group 2. Now, what if we were to apply this capitalist organization of relationships to our government. What if I said that I wanted to give you, eh, call it an opportunity to live in a society where you had no political say, no vote, no voice, all the decisions that affected you and everyone in this society were made by an elect few who were superior to you in wealth and in power. Essentially, the class structure of our society would put some of the decision-making power in the hands of some instead of everyone. And if that sounds like that already is a thing, hang on, we'll get to that down the road. Just keep thinking about our workplaces. Does that sound like a society you would want to live in? 
I'm going to be honest and say, that doesn't sound that great to me. I think I would feel excluded, disrespected, belittled, and honestly dehumanized. I definitely wouldn't feel as though I'm equal to those who are autocratically making decisions for me and for the communities I live amongst. I prefer relationships of equality and mutuality, where every person's dignity is defended, their personhood respected, and in which all people have equal say as equals made in the image of God. Now, let me ask you this. If we wouldn't want to be subjected to a hierarchical, authoritarian political system, where a few elites had all the political power over the masses of people, why would we be so willing to subject ourselves to undemocratic economic relationships in which the wealthier few employ the less wealthier majority? Why have we internalized the belief that inequality of power in the relationships of our workplaces, those places where we have to spend the majority of our waking hours, is somehow natural, just, or even, as some pastors and theologians have said, divinely ordained? I'll leave you with this. The relationships we inhabit, the systems and structures we defend and justify to critics, can reveal a lot about where our faith truly lies and what kind of a God we believe the God of Jesus to be. So, what do you think? Does God long for us to respect and defend the dignity and personhood of all human beings as equals made in the image of God? Or would God prefer power to be unequally distributed to some of us while others are excluded? Should the relational well-being of every individual community and ecosystem matter to us? Or do our relationships even matter to God at all? We've got a lot to talk about, folks. Now, next time, we're going to continue our discussion on our relationships with God and capitalism's class structure. We'll see you then.